What do I want? What do I want? And what do I want to be? What do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do today? What do I want to buy or to eat or where do I want to go? What do I want? If you think about that question, it's a question we, we ask almost without ceasing. We ask it without even realizing we're asking it. So as you spend 45 minutes to an hour on Netflix trying to find just the right thing to watch, or if you're a little bit younger and you're death scrolling on YouTube looking for another highlight reel or whatever it may be, those are questions of asking, what do I want? We ask it all the time. Now, a question we rarely ask is, what does God want? What does God want? And one reason we don't ask it is because we think, well, we think we know the answer and we don't particularly like the answer. Uh, the answer is God wants our love and our, and our obedience. And it's like how, how Micah 6.8 reads. He says, he has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so it's, it's very much like the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when you listen to that, if you're anything like me, that requiring and glorifying language leads us to think that, that God wants our obedience and only our obedience. And that sounds like, well, that kind of sounds like death to us. It makes God sound like a stern father, the worst coach you ever had, or, or you know, maybe a tyrant. I mean, who dedicates their life to being obedient? I mean, not even dogs aspire to do that. But of course, God does want our obedience, and, and Jesus was pleased. No, he, he delighted in being obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. You see, we were created to be exalted servants, and it's, it is the highest of, of privileges to be called to serve the king, which is what every human has been called to do. For God to want our obedience is simply another way of saying he wants us to be as he created us to be. And since the fall into sin with Adam and Eve, all humans chafe against being servants. That's why the word submission is such a, a dirty word to us. But does God only, does he only want our obedience? Well, the authors of the Westminster Standards were really onto something when they included the phrase, and enjoy him forever. I'd be willing to bet many Christians don't think of their relationship to God as, as something they enjoy or were meant to enjoy. It's probably also why it sounds strange when they hear that God likes them and actually delights in them. You see, God wants to restore humanity to himself. He wants to grow us into maturity through his son and the power of the spirit, just as he desired life and maturity for Adam and Eve, which they rejected. He wants to clothe us in righteousness, complete with sanctified hearts and minds, coupled with resurrected bodies that will no longer chase after sin and death anymore so that we can enjoy him forever. God wants our, our obedience, he does, but he wants so much more than just 
our obedience. Well, that takes us to our passage today. It's John chapter 17. We're looking at verses 24 through 26, the very end of what is known as the high priestly prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we look to walk through this. Heavenly Father, your word is good. It is beautiful. It is strong. It is meant for building us up and teaching us who you are and who we are in light of you. So that to that end, we pray for this time that we might see Jesus, that he might be amongst us, working in us through his spirit, that we might walk in his ways and delight in him, even as he delights in us. I pray all of this in his name, through the power of the spirit. Amen. Well, you could probably tell from your chapter headings, these are the final three verses of Jesus's high priestly prayer. And in these verses, he prays for his disciples to be with him. And this is looking forward uh, long after his death and resurrection. But he also prays about the reality of what they will face once he has ascended into heaven. So let's start with verse 24 and start working through that. If you look at verse 24, it has two, two distinct phrases, even as they are related. The first phrase is Jesus's desire for his disciples, and really by extension, his people, to be with him. The second phrase is why he wants this. It's so his people can see his glory given to him by the Father who has loved him before the foundation of the world. So, for some Christians, the first part of this phrase reads as, Jesus wants us to go to heaven. And that's fine as, as far as it goes. Talking about heaven as shorthand for God's throne room is a good thing because that's what the Bible does. Even so, many Christians mistake what Jesus is saying here as merely about going to a place as if place is the point. In virtually, now in virtually every other religion, place is the point. Place is the point. In Christianity, the person in that place is the point. So when in Psalm 23, for example, David says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as every Israelite understood, this wasn't about having a room at the Ritz-Carlton. They didn't think in terms actually of going to heaven. Just read through the Old Testament, you'll see it. It's not there. They did not think in terms of going to heaven. David was talking about enjoying and taking in God's never-ending presence forever. Is that in heaven? Of course it is. What they longed for was not heaven. They longed for God. They longed for God. David's desire, his hope, was to be in the holy of holies. Think about the tabernacle and then the temple. He longed to be in the holy of holies, feasting with God as Adam and Eve had enjoyed. Consider what Jesus says in John 14, and we looked at this, I don't know, a couple months ago. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So just listen to that. What is Jesus emphasizing? Getting a nice place or being with him? Now, lots of Christians think it's, it's getting a nice place. And while I have no doubt that the new heavens and new earth will be beyond what my, my little minds can imagine, even so, for all its beauty, it would be hell without him. It would be hell without him. So just as a wealthy life without God, as, as Johnny Cash via Trent Reznor once sang, is nothing more than an empire of dirt, a hollowed out mansion that will ultimately do nothing for you. So the point of the life to come is not heaven itself. It's the person who occupies the throne there. It's why, for example, Jesus tells the man dying on the cross next to him, who, who said to him, Lord, remember me as you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise there does not mean what we mean by it. Most people, when you hear the word paradise, imagine a lush tropical island with every convenience and pleasure we can conceive of. No, paradise is the Greek translation of the word Eden. Think of that. Paradise is where God dwells with his people. It's why when Adam and Eve sinned against God and were barred from Eden, it was paradise lost. And what did they lose? God. They lost God. And what's so crazy about this promise of life with God is that you already have it. You already have it. The giving of the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, is the down payment of the life to come. So think on that. You already have the first tastings of the inheritance that you will have forever in Christ. So even though we are still marred by sin, though we are prone to wander and chase after God's gifts, Instead of God himself, God has already justified us and set us apart as his people and already dwells with us in our very bodies and together as a people even. And all of this is an anticipation of the life to come. So you already have eternity now. You have the down payment on paradise now. But wait, there's more. Jesus says in the second half of verse 24 that he wants us to be with him so that we can see his glory given to him by the Father who loved him before the foundation of the world. So what Jesus is after here is his post-resurrection glory. So it's like what we see with the transfiguration with, with where Peter and James and John, they get a vision, they get to see Jesus in all his radiant glory, like what Paul saw on the road to Damascus that, that blinded him. And in that moment, uh, Jesus was enveloped in the glory cloud in the same way that Yahweh showed up on top of Mount Sinai after the Exodus. It's showing that the God of Exodus has now shown up in glory and power through his Son. That's why God the Father immediately says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
Now, when the disciples see Jesus after his resurrection, for example, he is still clearly the man they, they knew, but he is also transformed and he's glorified and they can't help but worship him. They don't say, wow, you look really good. No, they say, my Lord and my God in response to what they take in. They don't worship him, of course, merely because he was resurrected. I mean, think about it. No one worshiped Lazarus, and he was resurrected by Jesus. No, they worshiped him because they beheld his glory, and it was awesome. It's like John's description of Jesus in the book of Revelation. He writes this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So when you go through that, that I'm not going to take us all the way through that. It's a whole different sermon. But when you walk just briefly through it, the lampstands represent the churches, the lights of the world, the cities on a hill. And of course, this is not how the world sees them. It's how God sees them. And in the midst of the churches, Jesus stands among them. Again, if the world were to witness what we we do here, they would laugh at the notion that Jesus is here among us. But God's perspective is very different. Now, the Son of Man here is a reference to Daniel 7 and the prophetic vision of a human who would conquer Israel's enemies and in turn receive worship and honor alongside the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, that is Yahweh. And it's a strange vision because, as every good Israelite knew, humans must not worship other humans, and yet here they are. John's description of what he sees, then it's not literal in the sense that a sword was not actually coming out of the Son of Man's mouth. No, all of this is symbolic. It's symbolic. John is riffing on some of the most important images of the Old Testament because he's linking Yahweh, remember the one who rescued Israel from Egypt, and his glory with the Son of Man and his glory, just like with the transfiguration. So this Son of Man is beyond description. He has power and authority over all things. He's the first and the last. His word is the very word of God, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. And therefore, his word is definitive, and he holds the keys of life and death, something only the creator God has. So he is the resurrected one, the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah. And what John sees is so spectacular, so beyond the descriptive capabilities of language that he has to refer by way of symbol so people can see just how incredible he is, that without a thought when he encounters this being, he falls at the Son of Man's feet in worship as if dead. And as an aside, this was the same reaction of the Roman soldiers standing guard at Jesus' tomb. 
And what does the Son of Man do in response to, to John just hitting the deck? He reaches out and touches John and says, fear not. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus in all his power and glory and honor is still gentle and lowly and wants John with him. So why does Jesus want us then to see his glory? Well, if you just stop to think about it, unlike every other creature, we were made with a capacity to take in and marvel at what God made. Now, to be sure, other Christians, in, I mean, other creatures, excuse me, enjoy what God made, but, but we alone marvel and worship because of it. So just think about it. We marvel at pro athletes and what they are able to do with their bodies. Just last night, we were watching the NBA skills and slam dunk competition. They're incredible, you know, specimens of God's glory in all of their athletic and musculature and just amazing. Or just think about how we marvel at the genius of artists and musicians and what they create, or we marvel at the power or the terror of, of storms or deadly animals. It's why, you know, for example, in our, in our increasingly post-Christian age, we are more and more inclined to worship other humans and in turn seek validations and things like sex or likes on Facebook as a substitute for what we have rejected with God. The more we pursue the gift, the more it fails to give us life. And even then, the gifts he gives are incredible. They're incredible. How much more glorious is the one who created them, who created them? So if a piece of music or a movie can move you, how much more the one who made the heavens and the earth? If you have ever marveled at the beauty of a sunset or savored the smell of your favorite meal, how much more delightful must God be? It's actually what an atheist of all people posted on Twitter in an attempt to mock Christianity and inadvertently perfectly describe Christianity really well. He writes, Christianity, belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, and as an aside, one light year equals approximately six trillion miles, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. Now, I, I might quibble over some of those numbers, but he's essentially got it. That's right. The one who made the heavens and the earth in all its spectacular depth has set his love on you. That is the scandal of Christianity. And how awe-inspiring must he be? And he wants us to know him as he is. That's the point. He wants to give us the pleasure of knowing him as he is in all his glory. Thus, David says, I want to be in the house of the Lord forever with him. I want to take him in all my days. And at the heart of this awe-inspiring God is love. Love between the Father and the Son that has in turn been given to us. So when you consider the vastness of the universe and, and all those numbers being thrown out, my mind has no conception of how big that is. It's, it's just big, but even then it is but a shadow 
of how deep his love is for you. Well, in the final two verses, Jesus is pretty frank about the reality of the world in that moment and the reality of what his disciples will be facing. And he has been all the way through this series from chapter 13 onward. And despite the fact that God has sent his son into the world, the world did not know God and did not recognize Jesus as his son. And it would be fair to say that many, if not most of Israel, at least at this point, had either rejected Jesus or simply not responded to him rightly. So Jesus's ministry, if you think about it, had only produced a couple hundred people by the point of his ascension. Of his 12 disciples, one of them was on his way to betraying him as he prayed this prayer. So it did not look, by appearances anyway, that the kingdom of God had shown up. And for some, in our own times, it still doesn't. It still doesn't. So when the world looks at Jesus' birth and death, for example, what does it see? Well, it sees a nobody Jew born in a barn who died a shameful death. How does God see it? How does God see it? As a cosmic victory for the restoration of creation. When the world looked at the seven churches in the early chapters of Revelation, which was the very next chapters after the one I read uh, just a few minutes ago, what did the world of those, those churches, how did they see them? As a tiny group of nobodies who had started a new countercultural religion that denied long-held community practices and beliefs and was, as far as they could tell, completely antisocial and should be rejected. But how does Jesus see them? As lights shining in the darkness that enjoy his presence. See, the reality on the ground as the world sees it is, is not how God sees it. It's just not. And the temptation, though, is for us to see things as the world sees it. So even with the benefit of studying history and the huge impact Christianity has, has had on the world, and by the way, continues to have, Christianity has never been bigger than it is right now, globally. Still, the way the world sees things is as if the church has failed or is shrinking or, or is of no consequence. Now, might that be true among some demographics? Sure, you know, particularly among middle and upper class white people in American Western Europe. It's definitely shrinking, to be sure, it is. But globally, Christianity is booming, booming. So much so that in this century, China will become the country with the largest population of Christians despite the government they have. Even so, what Christians so often forget is that the world does not know God and we should not be surprised when people act accordingly. So this past week, the, the Fort Dale Varsity Girls played a soccer match in which well, the trash talking was so vile. One of our strongest players came off the field at halftime in tears and said, it's like they don't know Jesus. To which we said, they don't. They don't. And by the way, she wasn't weak for crying. I didn't read her that way at all. Her response was the right response to that kind of filth. And as I told the team the next day, 
they will face this sort of thing in one form or fashion for the rest of their lives. I, I've certainly heard far worse as a pastor, even from some Christians, no less. You know, I think the temptation among Christians, and I think this has been the case really since the Industrial Revolution and again directly after the Civil War, is to adopt a secular, apocalyptic reading of the world. You know, before that time, and we're, you know, we're talking 160 or more years ago, the Christian hope was that God would return to make all things new. In the aftermath of those very hard times, it changes to uh, this world is going to hell in a handbasket and God is going to burn this place down and we just need to escape and get to heaven. That view is still prevalent. It's still prevalent. And it shows up with the fear of, say, governmental overreach, like what is happening in Canada or with vaccine mandates or the social credit system in China. It shows up as, as Christian nationalists doomsday prepping and, and arming themselves for war against their neighbors in the name of rights. I mean, just this week, I saw a candidate whose slogan was Jesus, guns, and babies. That's it, Jesus, guns, and babies. And she said, I'm the candidate you've been waiting for. And I thought, man, I hope not. What all of these visions of the future share is the fundamental belief that Jesus is not ruling and that he certainly cannot redeem the world. And despite the repeated claims in Scripture that God raises and destroys empires, that he holds the hearts of kings and presidents in his hands, we doubt it. The real power is in Washington or Silicon Valley or Seattle, and we fear it. The Jesus we see in the book of Revelation is glorious, but he's not real. Or if he's real, well, I think he's just kind of chilling in heaven right now. Maybe he'll be more real at the end of time. That's why it's secular. That's why it's a secular apocalyptic reading of the world, because that's how secular people read it. A secular reading of the world says we must save ourselves, and at best, God can only help us escape this world. Well, the Christian reading, the Christian apocalyptic reading of the world ends with restoration, singing, and feasting with the Son of Man of Revelation. Just go start reading in Revelation 21 and 22 and see what it says. It's a party. Does that mean we should not work for justice or oppose tyranny or support our neighbors or speak truth? Of course not. We should. That's central to being a Christian. But the Christian difference is that we both trust God will restore the world, but also that the powers and principalities can't win no matter how dire it may look for us. As we already said with the asking for the Gideons, we have no idea what God will do with those Bibles. None but we trust he will act and we leave it to him to do it. You see, because Jesus knows the Father and we know Jesus, we have the truth of things, even as it often appears like everything is going down in flames. Do you think Jerusalem felt like the world was ending when the Babylonians conquered it and raised the temple to the ground? Now talk about feeling like God had left the building. What about when Rome fell or Constantinople or the Trail of Tears or Auschwitz or Nagasaki 
Guess what? Christians were in all those places. Every last one of them. Evil things do happen, and much of the world still opposes the Christ. But do not. We must not let appearances drive the ship. No, instead, look to the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, which extends, at the very least, in a diameter of 93 billion light years, who has set his heart on you, and he delights in you and wants to show such wonders and glories that we can scarcely take it all in. That's a God worth living for. That's a God worth putting our hope in. This is a God where obedience, remember how we started? This is a God where obedience becomes enjoyment. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're so good, and your steadfast love endures forever. It is wider, much larger than what you have made. May we place our hope in you. May we want what you want. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.